Much of a story is comprised of, of rising action, escalating tension that leads to some kind of climax and then finally a resolution. Now the gospel according to Matthew, it contains these same ingredients, these same elements of a story. And so at the beginning of Matthew, the characters are introduced and the scene is set. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now this is a profoundly Jewish story centered on the man, Jesus Christ. Right from the outset, we see that. And then from there, all throughout Matthew, and if you can remember from two and a half years back as we've been working our way through this book, there's just been this rising action, tension, building and building. So from the birth of Jesus Christ to the temptation of Jesus, from the Sermon on the Mount to the miracles of Jesus, from His parables to the transfiguration, event after event, story after story, pericope after pericope, there's rising action, tension building. And now Jesus has turned toward Jerusalem. And this sets the stage for the final climax of Matthew's Gospel account. And the tension is, is just reaching like new levels. And up until this point, Jesus has been teaching about God's kingdom. He's been teaching about the demands of God's kingdom and the upside-down nature of this kingdom, putting on display through wisdom and miracles the breaking in of God's kingdom in this world. And this has put the religious leaders of Israel in an increasingly difficult spot. And this is where a lot of the tension is coming from. They don't know what to do with Jesus. They don't like how Jesus has made them look. They don't like how he's kind of encroached on their turf, how he seemed to make people question their legitimacy and authority and wisdom. They don't like it at all. Then we come to Matthew 21. And in Matthew 21, Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life. And as he makes his way in, as you remember, beginning of Matthew 21, He's met by crowds who go before him and follow him and are all around him saying, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! He's met with adoration and triumphant cheers. It's as if a king, as if a king, is being welcomed into the city. And all of Jerusalem, this is what Matthew records, all of Jerusalem, the whole city is asking one question, who is this? And as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, where does he go first? He goes right to the temple. Which if, if Jerusalem was the heart of, of the religious identity of, of the Jews, I mean, the temple was it. It was the heart of hearts. And Jesus goes into this temple, that meeting place between God and the people. And Jesus doesn't arrive in the temple just fit in with the current customs of the temple or yield to the authority of the temple priest. No, there's rising action, a clash of competing kingdoms as Jesus comes and asserts his own authority, his authority that stands over and above every other authority. And the temple priests, those who viewed themselves as the ones who were in authority over this domain, this was the place where they rule, they're in charge. They're not happy about Jesus. They hear what the children say about Jesus. They see people being healed by Jesus, and they are indignant. And if you don't know what indignant means, they were outraged. They were angry. It's in the midst of this rising action, this escalating tension, that we come to our text today. 
And it begins with, with a trap, or what the chief priests think will be a trap. And we're, I'm going to use this, these opening few verses kind of as an introduction into the three parables we're going to be walking through. So look at verse 23, chapter 21. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now we've got to step back and understand something about life in Jesus' time. Authority was a really, really big deal for the Jews. Uh, And where authority came from really, really mattered. If you were one who claimed to have authority, you had to have some kind of external justification to that authority. You had to be able to point outside of yourself for why you had authority. It's often like this for kids. When I was a kid, if I came to my older brother and said to him, clean up, he probably wouldn't listen. But if I added two words to the front of that command, mom said, you have to clean up, the response was totally different because I had external justification for my authority. For the chief priests, all authority was delegated authority. No one could stand on their own. No one could just show up and take charge. Someone had to be behind it. And so the chief priests see Jesus wielding authority, acting like he's in charge of the temple, and they come to him thinking they're being all clever, and and they ask him, who's behind your authority? Now, it might seem like an innocent question, a sincere question, but they mean to set a trap for Jesus. They know that if Jesus points to some human basis for his authority, they can reject him because they are the human authority in the temple. So Jesus can't point to anyone else because they know they haven't given that authority. But if Jesus says his authority is from God, they can reject him and say he is a blasphemer. So their trap has been set. But, surprise, Jesus doesn't fall for their trap. Jesus knows that they don't actually care about his authority. They aren't interested in responding to him, only in undermining him. So instead of walking right into this trap, Jesus answers their question with his own question. Look at verse 24. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... We are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Now the chief priests, in all their wisdom and authority, they face quite the unexpected dilemma here. They publicly rejected John the Baptist. So they can't say that John the Baptist was from God. But if they're open and honest about their rejection of John, then all the people who saw John to be a prophet, they're going to reject these temple priests. So what do they do? You know, they do the same thing that we so often do when we want to avoid the consequences of an honest answer. Look at 27, verse 27. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. (laughs) And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the chief priests, they've come to, I mean, display their wisdom, set this trap for Jesus, and it results with them saying, well, I don't know. They just are made to look like fools. It's, can you imagine? Like, think about this scene. 
Imagine it with me. This is a day and an age where there was no TV, no cell phones, no individual entertainment, and what people did, what people enjoyed doing, where all the action took place was around the temple, in the temple and around the temple. That's where people were going. And so what people would do is they would gather around, and they would gather around to hear wise men teach. And they would hear people ask these wise men questions. So that like the biggest draw in the area where everything was happening was people coming to teachers and asking questions and teachers asking one another questions and giving answers. And here are these guys, the wisest of the wise, the, the ones who take great delight in dispensing their wisdom to the gathered crowds. And they've got their crowds gathered around and their opportunity to really showcase how brilliant they are. And this whole scene ends with them answering a question we do not know. The tension continues to build. Now from here, Jesus begins to teach. And rather than his teaching being some kind of relief to the tension, to the action, Matthew records three parables that just do the very opposite. Jesus tells three stories that, that build more and more tension. And in an increasingly dramatic fashion, these three stories they condemn the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And these parables are about how the chief priests respond to Jesus. How do these temple leaders respond to Jesus? They're about how we respond to Jesus. Jesus comes in his authority and power. And the most critical question is how will we respond to him? How will we respond to who he is? And so for the remainder of our time, we're going to look at each of these three parables in turn. And while their points are largely the same, we're going to see something of a progression in how we are to respond to Jesus through these stories. So the first one is the parable of the two sons. So number one, the two sons. Look beginning in verse 28 of chapter 21. Jesus said, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And the man went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But did not go. Now Jesus' first parable is very simple and straightforward. A man had two sons. And the first son rejected the father's command, but then he obeyed. The second son accepted the father's command, but did not. So Jesus asked the question, who obeyed? Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? Now the answer is so clear that none of the chief priests or elders or anyone else listening wondered who obeyed. It was the first son, the one who actually went and did what the father asked. And Jesus' point is very clear. What we do in response to God's message matters. Matters far more than what we say in response to God's message. What we do in response to God's message matters far more than what we say in response to God's message. But it's in what Jesus says next that the surprise comes. It's here where the tension escalates. Look at Jesus' response to this answer. Pick up in the middle of verse 31. Jesus said to them, Truly, 
I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax, the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, just a moment ago, the, the chief priests and the elders, they refused to answer what they thought about John. I mean, they, where did John come from? From heaven or from man? And, and they say, we don't know. Perhaps they should have answered that question because here Jesus calls them out on it. John came as God's messenger preaching this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying the kingdom of God is broken into the, this world. It's here. Respond. Repent. But do you know who did respond? Do you know who did repent? It was those who had been living in, in chronic sin. It was those who had previously rejected God. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were the most despised people in this community. They were those who the religious leaders would have seen as the very farthest from the kingdom of God. I mean, you might, maybe somebody comes to your mind and you think, who's the farthest from the kingdom of God? This is the tax collectors and the prostitutes. The very farthest. But they are the ones who have repented. They are those who have responded to God's message. And this brings us to the first right response to Jesus. How are we to respond to the message of God? Repent. Repent. One word, repent. Now repentance involves three things. It involves being convicted of sin, then confessing and turning away from sin, and then turning to God. So being convicted of sin, confessing and turning away from sin, and turning to God. Now notice something about repentance. Repentance has far less to do with what we say and far more to do with how we act. So when we hear the word of God, the very voice of God, we must respond. And there are only two possible responses. We hear God and repent, or we hear God and harden our hearts. It's the opposite of repentance, hardening our hearts. A hard heart is when we, when we cover our ears and we close our eyes before God. It's a refusal to acknowledge that God is indeed God. It's unbelief, and it's a, a disease that infects every one of us, but for the grace that comes by the Spirit in repentance. We as a people, we're not for the most part good and sometimes make mistakes, although we would like to think of ourselves that way. We don't just occasionally say something or do something bad and say, oops, like I sinned, as if it's just some, this kind of like external thing that's out there and sometimes imposes itself on us. No, we are sinners. We are sinners through and through, and we have hard hearts. We are far from God. Yet God, in His astonishing grace, He comes to us, and He speaks to us, and we have but to listen to yield to him, to repent. We acknowledge that God is indeed God, Lord of heaven and earth, and sovereign ruler of all. We say Jesus is king, and we follow him. That's repentance. But it's not enough just to say these things. We must turn to him. Talk is, is cheap and easy. The chief priests, they said the right things. They knew the right things, but they did not repent. That's the first right response, as we see in this parable of the two sons. We must repent. 
as that first son did. Although at first he, he rejected what God called him to do, what the father called him to do, he rejected it. He said, I will not go. But then he repented and he turned and he went. But the chief priests and the elders, they hardened their hearts. They were like that second son who said, yeah, I will, like that's me, and did not repent. And so to make his point increasingly clear, Jesus then tells a second parable. And it builds off of the first. And we're going to see some, some similar characters. Look with me, beginning in Matthew 21, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went in to another country. Now before we continue, what this master has done, we just want to look. He's, he's planted a vineyard, right? He's sowed this field. He's put a fence around it to protect it, to mark it off. He's dug a wine press in it so that it might be fruitful. And he's built a tower to look over it, to watch over it. Everything that's needed for an effective wine press, a fruitful, I mean, a fruitful vineyard is there. He's provided everything. He leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Verse 35, and the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. So the master, he's he's gone away to a far country. He sends his servants to come and collect from the proceeds of this fruitful field that he has planted. And these servants are rejected. They're beaten and killed and stoned. Verse 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. It happened again. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. So they recognized who he was. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. We're going to pause there. Now this story bears striking similarity to what God says in Isaiah 5. A text that the, the Jews and especially the chief priests would have known very well. I mean, it was the job of these, these temple preachers, temple leaders, sorry, temple priests, to know this stuff. It, it was their job. They were to know what the Old Testament said. And so they spent their time studying and memorizing and talking about the Old Testament. Isaiah 5, listen to what it says. This is the word of God. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Sound familiar? He built a watchtower in the midst of it. Oh, that sounds familiar. And hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And Isaiah goes on, verse 3 of chapter 5. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... Judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And then verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And the man looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now this story in Isaiah is perfectly clear. God sets up a vineyard, Israel, and Israel fails to produce what God requires. And so God brings judgment and destruction on this vineyard. Now imagine being the, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, listening to Jesus tell this parable. And imagine how this passage in Isaiah 5 must have been blaring in their ears. Jesus' point was just as clear as Isaiah 5. Not only is it a bad idea to not repent, Jesus teaches here that judgment will come to those who do not receive his message. And notice what Jesus has them do in verse 41 by asking the question at the end of his parable. They are the ones who speak these words of judgment on themselves. Now at this point, I wonder what the disposition of the chief priests and elders was. Like, I think to you and me, it's pretty obvious what's coming. Like, Jesus is going to lay down the hammer on them. Like, it's, it's like, it's coming, we're ready. But was it obvious to them? Were they just getting more and more angry? Or were they oblivious at this point? Or were they just choosing to ignore the implications of what Jesus was saying? Were they just excusing themselves as they listened? Now, I think it's likely that as they listened to Jesus, they were holding out hope that Jesus was teaching that the wicked tenants are the Romans, right? The Romans, they are the ones that Jesus must be talking about because they've come in and occupied God's vineyard and God's going to bring judgment on them. And so actually, it's interesting, the words that they say in verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. It's, he will put them to death. He will put those wretches to death wretchedly is what it actually says. I mean, it's like they're trying to like use as strong language as they can to talk about the judgment that's going to come upon these tenants, so it's the Romans that Jesus must be talking about. God's going to bring judgment on them. So they just ignore, they deflect, they excuse, they move on. You know, I think their disposition was probably not unlike us at times. We hear the word of God and it, it pierces us. It convicts. And perhaps it's that ongoing struggle with sin that you've kept hidden, that you haven't confessed. Or maybe it's that relationship you've been holding with someone that no one else knows about. Or maybe it's the way you've been living at home, the things you've been saying when no one else is around. God speaks his piercing word, and you may wince for a moment, like, oh, maybe that's for me. And then you tell yourself, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You ignore, you deflect, you excuse, you move on. Perhaps this is what the temple leaders were doing. But Jesus does not let them remain ambivalent and detached he continues to bring the, the crisis of his kingdom to them. There's no escaping this clash of kingdoms. Look at how he responds to these leaders who knew the scripture so well, who knew the Psalms backward and forward. Look what he says in verse 42 of chapter 21. Jesus said to them, have you never read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have they not read? Of course they have read. But here Jesus clearly and dramatically says that that he's not talking about the Romans coming into Jerusalem and being rejected by God. He's talking about himself coming into Jerusalem, sent by God to Jerusalem and being rejected by the very leaders who claim to follow his father. Now we can't see it here, but in in Jesus' telling, there would have been this wordplay between the son who was sent and stone. They were two words that sounded very, very similar. So Jesus is saying, "I, I am that son. I am the stone. And he builds from what he's already taught about John the Baptist. John, John the Baptist is one of those prophets, those servants who have come that you have rejected. Just like all the Old Testament prophets that have come before me that point ahead to me. They've been rejected. This brings us to the second right response. So the first right response is to repent. The second right response is to believe. When we hear the word of God, we must believe that Jesus is the very Son of God, the Savior of the world. We must believe that what He says is the word of God. We must believe that judgment is indeed coming to all those who reject Him. So Jesus says in verses 43 and 44, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now I want want everyone to hear this, but especially the kids that are here and all those who have grown up in the church to hear this and hear it clearly. Being here will not save you. Knowing the Bible will not save you. Knowing all the right answers will not save you. Knowing all of Mr. Loftus' catechism questions and answers will not save you. Only Jesus can save you. And salvation comes as we repent and believe in Him. It's a scary thing that those who knew the most about what God said were the ones that judgment comes upon. It's a scary thing. It's a sobering thing. But as we turn from our sin, our rebellion and rejection of God, as we turn from our utter hopelessness in ourselves and believe that Jesus indeed is the Son of God, the only one who can take away sin, and we follow Him, we obey Him, we repent and believe that He is who He says He is, it's because we believe that He is who He is, as King, as Lord over all, as the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, it's because of that that we follow Him, that we listen to Him, that we obey Him. You see, there are no part-time Christians in the kingdom of God. There are no double agents in God's kingdom. There are no Christians on Sunday, or I'm Christian around these people, but then I do whatever I want every other day. No, God is not mocked. He knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. It's kind of terrifying. He knows our hearts. Sure, we can say we believe. We can show up Sunday after Sunday. But true belief produces good fruit. How we respond to Jesus determines whether we belong to God's kingdom. Now, the chief priests and elders, they can't deny what Jesus is doing. Like, it's now painfully obvious to them. They've got to respond. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived, wow, they're so wise, he perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, 
They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Even, even at this point, they continue to harden their hearts. They could repent. They could believe. But instead, they seek to arrest Jesus. And so, the tension escalates. Which brings us to our third parable. So first we saw the two sons, second the wicked tenants, and third is the wedding feast. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him and hand him, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus repeats very similar points here that he's just taught in these first two parables. It's not enough just to accept God's invitation. You see, these were all people that were invited. They accepted the invitation, and now they're being summoned to come. It's not enough to say, I will obey. It's not enough to just occupy the vineyard. The clash of kingdoms leads only to two outcomes, either a feast or judgment. And if we want to be in on this glorious feast, then we must go. We must repent. We must believe. We must obey. The invitation of the gospel is, is one that's open to all. It's for all to hear, for all to receive, if they but repent and believe and obey, but not all come. Some simply stay busy with their farm or with their business. They are preoccupied with the passing things of this world. They figure, I'm fine. Maybe they think, you know, I'll just come later. Like, I can't come right now. I've got this thing I'm tending to. I'll come later. But they don't come. Others are openly hostile and reject the summons. They aren't just preoccupied with something else. They are intent on destroying this coming kingdom, intent on mocking this wedding feast. But the outcome for both is the same. They are not worthy to come to the wedding feast, and they are destroyed. And we might stop here, and this, the second parable and this parable m makes us, might make us a little uncomfortable. And we might think, can't God just be nice? Like, can't he just overlook this and let everyone come? You know, I thought, like, God is love. 
There shouldn't be any judgment. You know, when we think like this, not only are we rejecting the reality of judgment as taught by God in Scripture, but we are undermining the very grace of salvation. If there is no judgment, then we don't need to be saved. For what will we be saved from? Now, imagine for a moment, imagine that I hand you a parachute. All right, I hand you a parachute. Now, if that took place after this time of corporate worship and you came up to me and we were having a conversation and you're like, I'm like, oh, here, I got something for you and I hand you a parachute. Like, you look at me like I'm insane. Like, who carries around parachutes just giving them to people? You know, why not? I've got a parachute here. Here you go. It's, it's crazy. But what if we were both falling from the sky from 10,000 feet up? We're both falling together and I'm like, oh, here, I've got this extra parachute. Here you go. Maybe you receive it a little bit differently, right? Like, I, you could not grab that parachute fast enough because you know what's coming at the bottom of 10,000 feet. Well, we may not like the idea of judgment, uh, we have to read the Bible honestly. We've got to take God on God's terms and recognize that judgment is central to the entire storyline of the Bible. And not only that, but it is also the very real end for all those who do not accept God's invitation for salvation. Judgment is coming. There's only two ends. There's either a feast or there is judgment for every person who has ever walked this earth. A feast or judgment. Now I want to. I just want to make a couple comments about what this, how how this affects how we think about witness and being witnesses in our world. And at first, I think it should sober us. Um, th- this morning, we were we were on our on our way here as a family, and uh, Christine made a comment about what one of our neighbors was doing today, and. It's sobering. What they were doing was totally fine, but it's sobering in that there are all kinds of churches that people go to. And by churches, I mean the sports field down the street or the bed in my house or the TV or whatever other hobby and interest that I have on a weekend. There are all kinds of churches that people go to. There are all kinds of saviors that people look to, but none of them can save. And, and for all those who reject God's invitation... Judgment is coming. And so that should really sober us. And it should bring an an urgency to us in the relationships that we have around us. But our witness, not only should it be sober, it should also be hopeful. And I, I think of the parable of the two sons. What a wonderful picture of God's grace to us in that that first responses aren't the only responses. Thanks be to God, because I know my first response to God, and it was not a good one. It was absolutely an I will not. And the same is true for all of us in our sin. We all reject God. But thanks be to God, that's not the last response. And so we should be hopeful in our witness. Just because that that person that we've been praying for, for week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, who seems so far from God, that may not be the end of their story. Their story hasn't ended yet. So we must be hopeful. Hopeful that they might turn from their sin and, and receive God's invitation to His grace. So sober, hopeful, and then, and then third, for our witness, we should be joyful. And this is seen in this third parable. We are inviting people 
to this glorious feast, a, a feast that can satisfy every desire. It's, and it's the only thing that can satisfy. In Jesus is all we have and all we need. And that's what we get to hold out to people. And that's what we get to take part in. So we should be the most joyful witnesses. We, just because of the reality of judgment doesn't mean we need to bang people over the head and say, repent, 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 repent. No, we should be joyful and say, I've rejected God. And apart from God, I would be in such despair and so hopeless and running after things that don't satisfy me. And I've got all these things in my life that are reasons for despair. But thanks be to God and His grace, He has brought me into eternal life and eternal joy and eternal peace. And it wasn't because of anything I did. Nothing I did. It was all of grace. And you can get in on this. You're far better off than I am. And you can get in on this. We should be so joyful in our witness. That's just a little sidebar. But what do we make of this last little scene? The one where the guy with the wrong garment is thrown out. Like, what do we do with that? Again, I think we see here the danger that we are all in on presuming upon God's grace. And so we think attendance at church or a certificate that we have or some label that we adopt is enough to get us to that wedding feast. And so we, we think, you know, I did that 15 years ago. I'm fine. Apart from the grace of God, that guy with the wrong garment, it would have been me. You know, I, I grew up in the church and as a pastor's kid, and I was around the gospel, and I, I knew a lot of right answers, and I knew a lot of things about the Bible, and I sat under it week after week. And as I got older, I just thought, you know what? I can do that later. I don't, like, I don't have to do that now. I can do that later. I'll be fine. I did nothing to prepare for God's judgment. I just thought I'd be fine. But the astonishing and free grace of God, it's not, it's not cheap grace. As one commentator says, the kingdom comes with limitless grace, but also with limitless demand. And just like the temple leaders who have no business questioning Jesus, neither do we have any business questioning Jesus. We are quite simply called to repent and to believe and to obey. If we are to be who we all say we are, then it will shape all that we are. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the kingdom of God is upside down in every way. It's not like the kingdom of this world where we are our own gods living for our own desires and our own happiness. No, that is a path to destruction. Life is and can only be found in the astounding grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. He is the one who was that cornerstone. The stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone for us because he loved us and gave himself for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he did that for a purpose, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so we must repent of our hard hearts and turn to him. We must trust in him and we must obey him, loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving Him with all that we are and in all that we do. Now perhaps this brings you to discouragement. Perhaps you think, like honestly, I, I tried to do this, but I can't. Well, to you and to all of us. I want to close with this hope giving, these hope-giving words from one of my favorite theologians, John Webster, and he writes this. He says, So often it seems to us 
that try as we might, we cannot help ourselves. We cannot listen well. We cannot greet God's word with faith. We cannot soften our hard hearts. Of course we can't. We can no more improve our spiritual lives than we can raise ourselves from the dead. But what we cannot do, God can and will do. God has not left matters in our hands. We are in the hands of Jesus Christ. And He, Jesus Christ, is Lord of all things, all things, including our hearts, our wills, our desires, our hopes. He takes hold of us. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. By His Spirit, He brings new life. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, thank You for giving us Your Spirit to dwell with Your people forever. Renew Your Spirit in us that our hearts may be cleansed from all evil and that faith, hope, and love may abound in us. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.